Keep yourself from idols is the title today. The text is 1 John 5, 20 and 21. I hope you have a Bible. Haven't done it for a while. You should no more come to church without your Bible than you'd come without your... That's right, your pants. So bring a Bible. Either open it up or turn it on or do something. And at home, same thing. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come, that's Jesus, and has, this is what we looked at last week, has given us understanding, it's one, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. There's two things about Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. So, when John, I'm sorry to mess this up. When John talks about this understanding, that's what he means. We understand Jesus is the true God. We understand in Jesus alone is eternal life. That was what we looked at last week. There are two things he wants to underscore in these last few verses. One, this new understanding. Secondly, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's two. If you recall, I said last week that there were two controlling ideas in this great text. This, this grace of God through Jesus Christ, it brings, first of all, a new understanding. That's in that 20th verse. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us a new understanding. Given is the important word. This comes from Revelation. You don't deduce this. This isn't something that comes from a vote. Most people think this way. This is one possibility. No, it, there's, a, there's a revealed aspect of this. This is God's revelation, Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what conversion brings, first of all, this new understanding. We never knew. We never knew our deepest need apart from this enlightening. We never had any solution to our ingrained sinfulness. Can't get out of this on our own. Now John's going to move on to the second controlling idea in this text. It launches in that, we can hear you guys talking up there. It launches in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So the life of Christ has to manifest itself in an ever-deepening love for God. An exclusive devotion to him. That's the point when he talks about idols. This love for God must eliminate competing devotions. That's point number two. So point number one last week, number two on idolatry is what we're starting with. Point number two, when Christ enters the life, he establishes a love for God that dominates all other impulses and inclinations of the self. It's, it's maybe cleaned up here. Right there. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This isn't something God does. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So, so just to recap, John says, 
the first of the two primary manifestations of regeneration is the mind possesses a new understanding. It sees, it treasures, it embraces truth that it didn't value before. That's in that 20th verse. We know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. And we are in the true one. That is, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Just to be clear, it's not that everyone was running around denying Jesus Christ, hating Jesus Christ, or fought against Jesus Christ. But, but I didn't value it. I knew about it. I may have even agreed with it. What I, what I couldn't do on my own is treasure it. I didn't see glory in it. it. It didn't fully matter to me. I could live large slices. Maybe this is you. I could live large slices of my life as though life in Christ wasn't that important. It wasn't truly true in any of my priorities. And so you can see why this new understanding, you can see why it leads into John's second truth. This second manifestation of the true life of Jesus in my heart. John says, the affections are changed. The affections are purged from my heart that would in any way compete with a devotion to Jesus Christ, the idols. If the greatest command is to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then the greatest sin is to allow anything to dilute or to compete with that love for any amount of time. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is, it's a competition. It's a diluting of my supreme love, my exclusive love for God. There are two things to remember about idolatry. A, it's not a sin that relates to any one specific outward act. It will manifest itself in many ways, but the sin itself is committed in the heart. This, this final sin that John warns against isn't an outward act like stealing. It's not an outward act like lying. It's not an outward act like committing some sexual sin. It's not an outward act like gossip. No, it's an interior sin. It's committed in the mind. It's committed in the heart. Usually, only you and God would know about it. And it's sometimes hard to diagnose in a church like Cedarview. Unless, unless we're very careful especially as, as even the religious tone of the day gets more and more tolerant and pluralistic, unless we're very careful, any appeal that sort of pricks at our cherished 
patterns of idolatry, it'll just get explained away as being kind of old-fashioned, legalistic. So A, idolatry is not a sin that relates to any one specific outward act, and that makes it very hard to diagnose. And B, idolatry is the one sin we are all inclined to by nature. It's the one sin we are all inclined to by nature. You sang about it this morning. Prone to who wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to who leave the God I love. So there's a profession of love still. It's not, I don't hate God. But I do like to wander. I like to wander. And you don't see the initial stages of it. We sang, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. Everybody's worshiping the Lord together. And we have to stop and remember that the guy that wrote that song renounced his faith. Doesn't believe a word of it. The guy who composed that chorus. How did that happen? Prone to who? That's where it comes from. Just desires. More satisfaction somewhere else. More joy somewhere else. I don't have to deny anything. I wouldn't consider myself a denier of the faith. But I've wandered. It's the one sin we're all inclined to by our own nature. In fact, all other forms of perversion and wickedness, marring life in this world, they're all caused by idolatry. The Bible actually says so. It's in Romans chapter 1. Look this up. 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged, here we go, this is idolatry, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So there, that's the sin. The text then goes on to talk about the results of that sin. For, for this reason, it's for the idolatry. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women. That's defined. Natural relations is defined with women. And were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do, what, to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, 
Look at this list of sins. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve of those who practice them. Where do all those sins come from? What causes them to grow in people's hearts? How did things get so bad? Well, the soil from which all those sins grow is the attitude that puts, 118, the creature before the creator. Paul says people suppress the truth, 118, even though they know what they're doing is wrong, 132. And they do all of this because they've already decided to live for the creature, self, rather than the creator. Now, that's Paul. Paul uses a lot of words to say what John says very briefly. That's why this dying apostle, late 90s. Well, why does John, why does John, with his dear children, why does he want to close his letter with a warning instead of a benediction? Wouldn't a benediction have been nicer? And the last thing John wants to leave with these people is this good preaching? Is a warning. Little children. Like, like whatever else you forget. Keep yourself from idols. They'll steal your heart. Point number three. The essence of conversion is the turning from idols to God. The Bible says so. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. Here's the best definition of conversion in the New Testament. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, they've got this great reputation, this church in Thessalonica, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, here it is, turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. It's hard for us sometimes to remember that regeneration, born again, conversion, saved, I don't care which word you want to use, any of them. It's, it's hard for us to remember that there are always two sides to conversion, not one. We think of just one side to conversion because of the way we usually describe it. We talk about coming to Jesus. We talk about accepting Jesus. We talk about inviting Jesus. The New Testament, I'm not knocking it, I'm saying the New Testament never uses any of those terms. Never. The New Testament talks about turning from idols to serve the living God. No one has turned to God until they have turned from idols. That, that's the thrust of Paul's words. He says the people in Macedonia and Achaia, they knew about the wonderful work of God that had taken place in Thessalonica. News had traveled, Paul said. So this reputation of the Thessalonian revival, it traveled faster than Paul. What did the people in these other places, what did they notice about God's work among the Thessalonians? Well, here's what they noticed. Those people used to worship idols. 
They used to have idols. But they came to Christ. But the first thing they did wasn't coming to Christ. The first thing they did was turning from their idols. Now, in today's text, John reminds his readers in his last words that their greatest threat hasn't changed. And he would, if he were standing here today, he would look at all of you and he'd say, your greatest threat hasn't changed. They have to guard their hearts. The greatest danger isn't, first of all, that they're going to do something bad. The greatest danger is that they will go astray in their hearts. They will go astray in their affections. And as I said at the beginning of this teaching, John's worry isn't that these people will cease loving God. That's not it. His worry isn't they're not going to profess loving God. That's not it. His worry is this. They don't have to deny God to end in spiritual ruin. John's worry is that God will become one of the things they love. Do you see it? His worry is God will become one of the things they love. That's the path to ruin. Here are these closing words of John. We're almost done. Here we have been, church, for over half a year and about 19 hours if you added it up about 19 hours of study in 1 John. And for all of our talk about spiritual warfare, most of the time you don't fight the devil directly. I think we flatter ourselves. He's not omnipresent. Most of the time you deal with Satan in a secondhand fashion. What he does most successfully is distract our attention, divide our loyalties, weaken our attachment to Jesus long before he trips us up in some outward act of sin. Long before. I will stand before God. You will stand before God soon enough. Sooner than we think. Keep all the idols out of your heart. It's, it's like dusting under your bed. You never do it for the last time. Where does that stuff come from? You have to keep your heart clean. Keep. Keep. It's, it's a verb that keeps going. Keep yourselves from idols. John says you and I will keep our spiritual understanding sharp and our joy crisp. As we keep the idols out, we will hold temptation at bay more successfully if we work at keeping the idols out. And perhaps most of all, people will see the difference Jesus makes in my life if I keep the idols out. He is so precious that we will never be bought off by anything less precious. People will come to treasure the Christ, not the one we proclaim, but the one we also treasure. They don't need just to hear my words. So let me wrap this up 
where John wraps it up. Here's, here's, here's the thing. Idolatry is the most dangerous sin because it is one of the hardest sins to define. Idolatry can easily escape diagnosis. Let me define it like this. Let me define it like this. Idolatry is anything I desire without which my joy in Jesus feels incomplete. It's anything I've attained or possessed that satisfies my heart more than what I have in Jesus Christ. An accomplishment, a promotion, an ability, a possession. Here's where Jesus gives that definition, by the way, the exact same definition. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, how are we going to know? How are we going to know if someone has really come to Jesus? You have someone come up to you and say, I just, I came, I accepted Jesus. I asked Jesus into my heart. How many here you'd say, well, I'm, I've accepted Jesus. How do you know? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's that mean? What does that mean? I hope you see it. The life of Jesus in the soul, here's what it does. When it's genuinely there, it drives out all other hungers. It, it, it's, it eliminates competing desires. Nothing else satisfies. That's what Jesus means. You're not going to thirst for anything else when you have me. If you're still thirsty for everything else, if you're still finding more challenge and joy in something else, then you don't have the life of Jesus in your heart. Jesus makes his work, he marks his work in my heart by its capacity to make everything else unnecessary for my joy. He makes everything else unnecessary for my joy. There's other things I do, of course. No one just sits and reads his Bible all day. It's not that there will never be other things in my life. But there is nothing else I thirst for. There is nothing else that competes with my joy because my heart is so abundantly satisfied in Jesus Christ. So we all need to be warned about idolatry, and here's why. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, this isn't something Jesus does or the Holy Spirit does, this is something we do. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Look what he does. Covetousness. Then he goes, which is idolatry. 
Why? Why does Paul feel the need to tell me that greed is idolatry? Why, why that one sin, that one sin on the list? He says, now that, my friend, that's idolatry. I'll tell you why. It's because my, my desires for ordinary things and your desires for ordinary things don't feel idolatrous, do they? They feel normal. I mean, I just want a new car. I just want to pay off my mortgage, Pastor Don. What in the world's wrong with that? I just, I really want that promotion. I want to get a cottage. I want to go to Hawaii. And, and all of us in this room, we can all find those desires in our hearts. And Paul says, that, that's okay, but, but those things quickly turn idolatrous if you're not keeping them in their proper place. That's what he's saying. Paul actually says that about himself. He says, he says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. You see what Paul's saying there? I would not have known what it is to covet. That's Paul's way of telling me he didn't feel the sinfulness of his own desires because they weren't sexually immoral. They weren't violent. They weren't desires that were vengeful or cruel. He just the stuff he wanted. And the desires didn't feel like sin. He says, I wouldn't have even known I was being covetous. That's it. That's it. And what's covetousness? It's idolatry. I got a quote I want to read to you. And uh, it's longer than I might normally read. So are you okay with that? Like a couple of pages. I actually don't care if you agree with me or not. I'm going to. I'm reading this book. It's called Live Not by Lies. Most of it has to do with um, Russia, Slovakia during Czechoslovakia, during the communist re regimes and, and the persecution of Christians and the church. But there's a point I want to make that relates to this message. So I'm not just trying to entertain you here. The writer talks about visiting some of these guys now and hearing their story. Christians who were persecuted, imprisoned. In the 1980s, this house was a headquarters for printing and distributing Christian Samizdat. Samizdat is, is uh, scripture that's illegal, tracts, those kind of things. So we hear that word, it's like publishing Christian materials. Underground literature forbidden by the communist regime. Simulac, now in his 50s, was part of the movement as a college student, a Catholic priest, posing as a worker, lived in secret in the house back then. Similac and a handful of other Catholic students would come there, planned intervals to sort and package Samizdat documents for distribution. Similac led me down a crumbling concrete staircase into a basement. It was plain, damp, a bit chilly, like every other basement in the world, 
What's the point, I was wondering. Then the scholar removes a floor panel that had entirely escaped my notice. There was a hole in the basement floor big enough for a man to climb through with iron rungs embedded in the concrete wall. Simulek turns around backward and descends into the hole, signaling for me to follow. At the bottom, there's a short tunnel. Crouching to make my way through the cramped space, I follow Simulek up the iron rungs in the exit shaft. We emerge in a tiny room, not much bigger than a closet. There's a table against the wall upon which sits an offset printing machine of 1980 vintage. In this secret room, underneath the house and behind the secret basement wall, accessible only by a hidden tunnel, dissident Christians printed gospels, prayer books, and catechism lessons for clandestine distribution through communist Slovakia. The printer was a gift from the Catholic Church, a gift to the Catholic Church from evangelical Christians in the Netherlands who smuggled it into the country in pieces and sent a second team to reassemble it in the underground room. After communism fell in 1989, the operation ended and the uncovered, undercover priests moved out of the house. But subsequent owners have maintained the secret room as a reminder of what it took to save the faith under the totalitarian yoke. There was a man in my university who worked as an elevator repairman, Simulek tells me as we stand in the room, our heads almost touching the ceiling. This man's hands were often stained. I thought it was from the grease and grime of repairing elevators, but it was actually from the ink he used to print the Samizdat. His job was a perfect cover. As a student, Simulek knew that the elevator repairman had something to do with the Christian underground, but he wasn't sure what. That was by design. The underground only shared information like that on a need-to-know basis so that those arrested, and there were many, by the secret police couldn't compromise the operation if they broke down under interrogation. What Simulek did not learn until communism fell was that for all those years he was upstairs in that house complying, compiling Samizdat the elevator repairman was down below, spending hours in a tomb-like room, printing off the words of life at great risk to his own liberty. In fact, everyone involved in the Christian Samizdat project would have been sent to prison, and many were, had the secret police ever discovered the network. As Simulek breaks down for me the complex moving parts of the operation, he emphasizes the extraordinary risks the underground Christians took for the sake of publishing these documents. I'm almost done. Now, Frantisek Michelako, who is a cellmate of Simulek, now in his 70s, was a central leader of the second wave of the Slovak underground church. Now I'm getting to the point. Pay attention. When we meet for lunch in a Bratislava restaurant, he is quick to offer advice to the current generation of Christians, us, who in his view are facing a very different kind of challenge than he did at their age. When I talk to young people today, he said, I tell them they have it much harder than we did in this one way. We knew our enemy. It was obvious. It's almost impossible for the youth of today to see their true enemy. Keep yourself 
Keep yourself from idols. They're always almost impossible to detect. And they will take away your freedom as surely as any communist regime on the face of the earth. They're just harder to see. Keep the idols out. What makes people cool in their commitment to Jesus? What makes people leave Christ? Not denying Christ, just leaving Christ. No one sins out of duty. No one backslides out of duty. I'll tell you what happens. Something else satisfies more. And they didn't keep the idols out until they can't find their way back. And everyone said, Jesus, church, pray this prayer out loud after me, would you please? Lord Jesus, we're prone to wander. Sometimes we feel it, and sometimes we don't. We, we, we bring our hearts to you all over again. Bring a fresh love that's undistracted. Make me aware of the idols in my heart and find my way home to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.